Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, it's that time of the year. Thanksgiving is here. Can you believe it? Certainly the year has flown by and Thanksgiving is here. And this is a special time of the year for us because, as you know, Jimmy, we have a family reunion coming up. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. We'll be traveling to Tallahassee, Florida. You know, Rick, the celebration of Thanksgiving is so very important. And today we're going to focus a little bit on Thanksgiving. We have our good friend Paul Blair coming back today, but we do have our other broadcast partners and we got to keep up with world events. Rick, do you know that we have people that listen to us and send us stories pertaining to events, current events that are taking place? We love that, Jimmy. And then that kind of engagement is what we're looking for as we look to spark your uh, thought process about what's going on in the world and how it relates to Bible prophecy. You know, you're so right. And that's my desire, your desire. That was dad's desire when he started doing this program is to have people have a prophetic biblical worldview. I've had so many emails and text messages, good friends, uh, Jerry Johnson at a, at a radio station in Alabama. And uh, of course, uh, R.C. Merle sent me this information pertaining to digital currency and the Federal Reserve. Unbelievable. I have many people sending us information and encouragement along the way pertaining to what we're looking at on a weekly basis, trying to keep the body of Christ aware of what's going on in the world. Well, let's get started because we have to cover what's happening in the world right now. And our good friend, Ken Timmerman, is standing by. Ken Timmerman joins us. He's our expert on geopolitical affairs. He's an author and an analyst. You can find out more about him and sign up for his newsletter at KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thank you for joining us today. Rick, it's always a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, Ken, I have several distinct issues I'd like to talk about today, but we'll start with Iran. Now, there was alleged reports of a brutal crackdown on the way. I'm of two minds when I hear that, and I'd like to get your opinion on it. Either the regime is going to do this long-anticipated crackdown that will end this uprising, or it's beginning to spiral out of control and the regime can't handle it. Which is it? Well, that's a good way of putting it, Rick. Look, there have been about 400 deaths so far in these protests that are now, you know, well into their second month and more are to come. The Revolutionary Guards announced about 10 days ago that they would no longer tolerate protests, that they would shoot live ammunition at the protesters. And since that time, the number of dead that we have seen has roughly doubled. So they are very serious about this, and they do intend to kill people in the streets. The regime has arrested something like 10,000 people, and now they are beginning to issue death sentences against some of those people jailed. One of the things that has people worried, and this was even discussed in the British Parliament this past week, is the track record of the Iranian regime president, Raisi. He was the head of the judiciary in 1988 when they hauled out something like 30,000 political prisoners and just assassinated them. They just killed them in the prison courtyards. They hung them up, killed 30,000 people who were political prisoners. So as people watch this, they see what's going on. They're worried that Raisi will be very much tempted to do the same thing again. He has paid no price for it politically inside Iran. He has paid no price for it internationally. He was allowed to come to New York in September 
for the General Assembly of the United Nations. And all of this is uh, extremely troubling. Uh, and uh, many, many observers are expecting a bloodbath to come. Well, it has already lasted longer than I thought it would. And I don't know who said this, maybe Winston Churchill, you get the government you deserve. Well, it seems like these Iranian citizens have decided that they deserve a different government. Well, we'll certainly continue to keep an eye on that. Our thoughts and prayers will be with them, not only for the Iranians as a whole, but we have talked about this in programs past about the Christian community there. We certainly want to keep them in our prayers. But let's get an update from you, Ken, on the G20. We talked about it last week. This meeting of nations. Looks to me like, and the reports that I've got, it looks like China, fresh off their self-imposed COVID restrictions of not coming to these types of things over the last few years, they're there and they're flexing their political muscle. Uh, they certainly were. President Xi was there uh, pretty much dominating uh, this meeting in Bali. And there was an extraordinary encounter that was captured on live television and probably purposefully captured on live television when President Xi remonstrated with Justin Trudeau, the prime minister of Canada, and said, look, we had a private conversation yesterday, and today I see that it's been leaked all over the newspapers. And that's not the way that we do things. That was not the basis on which we had that conversation. And Trudeau was kind of sitting there fidgety. He looks like a little kid who's just had his fingers slapped uh, by a ruler, by the nun. So he then tries to babble something. Well, in free countries, we have this free kind of debate. And she said, no, 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 no. This is not the way that we do things. And Trudeau then walked off. But I think this was done purposefully by she to essentially intimidate and humiliate Justin Trudeau. And he looked pretty intimidated and humiliated. Well, I'd like to finish up our round of questionings. And you talk about President Xi and how he is flexing his political muscle. Well, I'd like to talk about American politics just a little bit before we finish up here. And here on Prophecy Today, we look at current events and we don't necessarily take a political side, but we do talk about politics because it helps us to understand the way things are taking place in the world. And I'd like to talk about President Biden. Last week, you introduced something that could have been brought up at the G20 summit. It seems like you're always one program ahead of the new cycle, Ken, but you talked about uh, maybe Hunter Biden's being used by the Chinese as kind of a blackmailing operation against President Biden. And then this week we saw that the new Republican House is going to open up an investigation. I don't necessarily want to talk about the veracity of that report or the truth of that report, but what does this mean on an international scale? How could this affect our dealings with foreign countries? Well, Rick, one of the reasons that we discuss American politics is because it's absolutely critical for the geopolitical situation in the world. It's also critical for us as believers to understand whether America has a role in the end times. Mm. Your dad and I discussed this many, many times. And uh, if America has a weak leader, if America is seen to be on the decline worldwide, uh, it would give you the inkling that perhaps we're not going to be there. We may cease to exist as the world's sole superpower in 10 years and 20 years from now. Weakness is, is a provocation. It invites mm -hmm. attack. And we are now in a position where we have a weak leader. Uh, President Biden at this G20 summit, for example, fell asleep in the dinner. He could not even attend a dinner with the 19 other most powerful and wealthiest uh, leaders in the world. A pretty extraordinary thing to have happen. I don't think that we've had a 
recent president do that? And you also asked about the probe with Hunter Biden. This has been announced by the incoming Republican leadership. The way the U.S. political system works, you don't have to have a majority of 50 votes in the House of Representatives. You only have to have a majority of one. (laughs) And we don't yet know how big the Republican majority will be, but we do know that they have a majority of at least one, which means that they held the speaker's uh, uh, gavel and the Republicans are going to be the chairman or chairwomen of these important committees. There was a press conference on Thursday. Representative James Comer of Kentucky announced that he would be launching an investigation of Hunter Biden's laptop and other related issues, but he was very clear to, 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 for people to understand this was not about Hunter Biden. This was about Joe Biden because on a laptop and from Hunter Biden's business partners, we learned that Joe Biden was getting a percentage cut of Hunter's overseas business deals. This is called corruption. Uh, and it's something that is uh, an impeachable offense. In fact, should the president of the United States turn out to have been influenced by foreign leaders and foreign money. That is the very definition of high crimes and misdemeanors that was first elucidated by the founders in the Constitution. So these are very, very serious hearings that are going to take place. And I believe that uh, the Republican leadership is committed to following it wherever it goes. Well, and certainly, Ken, and you could check me if I'm wrong, but basically an established fact that these dealings were with the countries of Ukraine and China. Hello? And Russia. And Russia. And and Russia. And Russia. These three nations in the news, this was not some obscure deal. This is right in the middle of what's taking place of events that are shaping the political landscape today, right? Absolutely. And one of those uh, was uh, a quid pro quo with the president of Ukraine, which Joe Biden himself boasted about later on. And it's on videotape. You can go look it up on YouTube where he said, oh, well, I was there and I we had a billion dollars we were going to give the Ukrainians and loan guarantees. But if they weren't going to replace this prosecutor, they weren't going to get it. And, and he said, but God, you know, I won't repeat his exact words, but he said, and well, what do you know? Just hours before I left, they decided to turn they turned around and they replaced the prosecutor. It was a quid pro quo. And he explained it as a quid pro quo. President Trump was impeached on much, much less than that. Now, I am not suggesting that it would be political advantageous for the Republican leadership in Congress to impeach Joe Biden. It would probably backfire on them politically. What I am saying, however, is that the facts of what Biden has done go way, way beyond what Donald Trump did. And this is before the investigation has even been launched. So I think we're going to find out a lot of things from this congressional investigation. I don't think it's going to make Democrats very happy. I don't think it's going to make me very happy to see the Mm. president of the United States in this kind of compromised position. I think it's embarrassing. I think it's disgraceful. And frankly, uh, it makes you wonder uh, how he got there in the first place or why he thought he was in a position to be able to run for this high office. Well, I certainly think it's fair for us to ask these questions, and we will continue to do so. We will continue to keep an eye on this situation. It is very concerning. Not partisan politics, folks. We're just talking about the facts on the ground and making sure that we're holding people accountable. Well, can you do a good job of laying out the facts for us? We appreciate it very much, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. It's always a pleasure, Rick. Thanks for having me. Great job, as always, Ken Timmerman and Rick. 
Thank you so much. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, our Middle East news update right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Judges in Iran have sentenced five protesters to death since Sunday, accusing them of enmity against God. Women remain on the front lines of Iran's protest movement, despite the regime's increasing crackdown. Transform Iran's Pearl of Persia ministry serves women on the lowest tiers of society. Iran holds more than five million drug addicts, sexual abuse victims, and prostitutes. Read more on the Gospel Intersect at missionnews.org. Meanwhile, Bangladesh's foreign minister says the country's been left alone to help one million Rohingya refugees. International funding to help them has decreased every year. Greg Kelly with World Mission works among the Rohingya, giving them humanitarian relief as well as solar-powered audio Bibles. They've seen many Rohingya get baptized in the nearby Bay of Bengal, but they have to be secretive to avoid persecution from the Muslim majority. Ask God to strengthen these new believers. You've been listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is the segment of our program that we call our Middle East News Update. And with us, we have our good friend, Middle East journalist, longtime resident of Israel, longtime journalist in Israel, Dave Dolan. Dave, thank you for joining us today. Glad to do it, Rick. Well, Dave, as you said last week, uh, we're going to need a playbook to keep up with what's going on here. There's going to be a lot of work in putting this new government together for newly elected Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. So can you give us an update on where things stand right now? Well, Rick, I mentioned last week he was hoping to present the new government to the new Knesset the day that it was inaugurated last Tuesday. That did not happen. Uh, We're told his new goal is next Wednesday. That is unlikely, it seems, to happen. He's running into a lot of obstacles, a lot of problems. And basically, it's um, some say the monster that he created or the entity he created, uh, which was the alliance of three national Jewish religious parties into one party. And that brought them all over the 3.25 threshold to get into the Knesset. That was Netanyahu's idea, is why waste any right-wing votes? You guys all run together as one party and you'll get more seats. Well, indeed, they got 14 seats, which even shocked Netanyahu. The projections originally were 8 to 10 seats, then it went to 10 to 12, and they ended up with 14, making them the third largest party in the entire Knesset. 
and they would be the second largest party in Netanyahu's coalition. But because of their great uh, success, these uh, mostly based in Judea and Samaria parties in the election, they're making much stronger demands upon Netanyahu than were earlier expected. I mentioned last week, in particular, the leader of the party, the official leader, Basilel Schmotrich, wants to now become defense minister. He is definitely on the right wing of Israel's political spectrum. He was part of a group in 2005 that poured oil on the Ayalon Freeway near Tel Aviv as a protest against the Gaza withdrawal that Ariel Sharon was conducting. He was arrested for that. And he feels emboldened to ask for the second, really, the defense minister is definitely next to the prime minister, the most important post. And it's already gotten, as we've heard last week, rumors of, it's now gotten official opposition from the Biden administration with Tom Nidis, the American ambassador to Israel, meeting with Netanyahu Monday. Now, that wasn't an announced meeting, but uh, all the media reported it, in which he didn't name him by name, Smotrich, but he said, We will find it difficult to work with Israel at the same level if extremists are brought into the government, if people that oppose Palestinian um, two-state solution are brought in in a big way, etc. And Smotrich in particular is asking that as defense minister, he would oversee changing the status of the Jewish communities in Judea and Samaria, now 700,000 Israeli Jews live in these communities, and he wants to put them under direct Israeli law, uh, which would, in effect, annex them. And Netanyahu is in favor of that. In fact, he was planning to do that when uh, Donald Trump was still president. But apparently in meeting with Smotrich on Tuesday, where He again reiterated he wants the defense ministry. Netanyahu had earlier indicated he might be willing to give it to him, but he said, no, I've been in touch. This is press reports telling us this. We don't have an actual reading from from the prime minister designate's office on it, but that he said, no, we can't do that now. It will destroy relations with the Biden administration. You just can't have that post. But Smotrich is holding fast and demanding that that be the post that he's given. It was thought that he might take the Treasury post, the finance ministry, but the head of the Shas party, another important component of the new government, Ari Derry, wants that. That uh, party controls the purse strings. And as I said last week, they're more concerned about those sorts of issues than they are Judea and Samaria. But Smodrick wants Israeli law extended basically to all those Jewish communities. Right now, they're under the authority of the army, of the civil administration, as it's called. And when an Israeli wants to build a new extension to their home in, uh, let's say, the town of Ariel or, you know, near Hebron or anywhere else, they have to first apply to this army um, body, and then they go to the different ministries. Well, he wants to change that. And Nidus apparently made clear to Netanyahu that he will oppose that, that the U.S. will oppose that strongly. So there's a dilemma there, and there's anybody's guess as to where it will come out. But there is a suggestion, Rick, 
that the prime minister-designate might instead, and I mentioned this last week, try to bring in Benny Gantz's Blue and White Alliance Party. I say Alliance Party because he merged with a former Likud party called New Hope that was in the uh, last government, the outgoing government, I should say, and together they got 14 seats. Well, that's the same number as this right-wing religious party uh, the the um, uh, religious Zionism party, it's called, which incu- includes another two smaller parties, Itamar Ben-Gavir's Jewish Power Party. And this all gets in the weeds, I know, but uh, instead then keep Gantz as the defense minister. That, of course, would be much more pleasing to the United States, even though um, Gantz this week came out strongly against a statement from the a U.S. Justice Ministry saying that it was going to launch an official probe of the death of Sharin Abu Akhle. We talked about that early this year, the Palestinian-American journalist that was uh, shot dead in an exchange of fire between Palestinians and IDF forces in northern Samaria. And it may have been a stray Israeli bullet that they killed her. That was discussed, but 23 Democratic senators are demanding an investigation of that, and the FBI might be brought into it. Well, um, Gantz said, no way. We can't allow our soldiers to be questioned by any foreign security services or entities. We allow you, a friendly country like the U.S., to do that. Well, everyone will start demanding that, and it opens a can of worms. So there's some tension between Gantz and the Biden administration, but nothing like there would be if Smotrich became defense minister. So uh, Netanyahu is once again trying his best to cobble together a government that he thought would be fairly easy, but the very success of his drafting this new right-wing religious alliance into a one party it seems to be coming back on him, and we'll see where it goes. So just for the uneducated, uh, you could count me in that number, David. Let me just see if I have this correct. Basically, he is tasked with forming a government, and he has got to take the different parties that won. So right now, everybody, all these personalities that you're talking about, the leaderships of those parties want different minister positions. Everybody's negotiating. Is that right? And and Netanyahu seems to be a master negotiator, uh, but everybody is staking out their position. Nobody wants to show their hand. Nobody wants to give in. Nobody wants to compromise until the government is put together. For better or worse, this is how democracy works in Israel, isn't it? It is. It's confusing. It's a parliamentary system. But under a parliamentary system, Netanyahu could technically bring in any other party that's in the Knesset. Well, David, my last question, because time is short here, but with these right-wing parties potentially, and again, nothing is for sure yet, potentially coming into the government, many people look at two issues, one of them being uh, the West Bank or Judea and Samaria region and what these changes in government will mean for that region and those people and those Israeli citizens that live there. But the other big one is the Temple Mount. And there are many warning that this uh, right-wing government is going to try to potentially make changes to the Temple Mount, and they are trying to put a stop to that before maybe something even happens. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, Rick, as I've said in the past couple of weeks, uh, Inamar Ben-Gavir, uh, one of the leaders of this religious Zionist 
party, uh, is a very strong advocate for rebuilding the temple, for Jewish prayer up on the Temple Mount, for visiting the site. And he wants to become the new police minister in the country. And uh, various uh, Palestinian leaders, including the PA, denounced that idea this week. And one of the Arab Knesset members, Ahmed Tibi, gave a very fiery speech. He said if that happens, if he becomes a minister and makes any attempts to change the status quo on the Temple Mount, it will, quote, ignite the Middle East. He said this is a fascist government being formed, and we on the Arab side will oppose it in in every way possible. So that's another thing that um, the prime minister needs to consider as he moves forward with these things. And the PA said essentially the same thing, that we will strongly oppose this. So interesting where it's going. But once again, the Temple Mount is very much at the center of all the tensions and all the struggles that are going on in the region. And we'll just have to see what happens. Well, as we know from Scripture, Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, the center of the earth, the center of uh, God's plan in the end times as well, as we look at that. Well, David, thank you so much for your report on Israel and the confusing situation there. We look forward for your continuing education of us, and we'll talk to you again soon. I know it's complex, Rick, but uh, we need to know. God bless. Thank you. Rick, indeed, it is complex, and I think we need to continue this conversation with Israel Madad. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Israel Madad and Pastor Paul Blair on Thanksgiving, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. I know last week we said, Rick, that we would uh, examine our new and latest DVD, the last one that we did with our father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, The Demise of America. And we are going to do that. We're going to focus on that next week after this special program on Thanksgiving. So be sure to tune in with us next week as we'll have a special clip from that DVD that will be available on our website in the future. And I'm sure you will want to get it with all of our broadcast partners on that DVD. Well, Rick, you know, uh, we're continuing our conversation on Israel with Israel Madad. God's word affirms that the Jews are God's chosen people. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. 
That's Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Today we're going to continue talking to Winky Madad on Israel and a troubling pattern that's coming up in our world today, anti-Semitism. Rick, why don't we go to Winky Madad about this subject? Winky Madad joins us from Israel. He's there in the area that we call Judea and Samaria. You might have heard it referred to as the West Bank, but on this program, we refer to it by its biblical name, Judea and Samaria. So Winky, uh, Winky's an, actually a political pundit. Uh, he's been in politics for quite a long time. He follows what's taking place in Israel, and he is our resident Jewish-Israeli uh, intellectual. Winky, thank you for joining us today. I'm going to have to put that up on my wall. <laughs> Feel free to do so. Well, uh, Winky, here's what I'd like to talk to you about today. I'd like to talk about the anti-Semitism issue that's come up in the news over here with American celebrities. But before I do that, I would like to get your thought, because it is uh, so much in the news right now and it is so important to Israel and to what's going to take place there in the Middle East, I'd like to get your thoughts on the new Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, how the coalition is coming together, or is it coming together, how the new government is forming? Can I get your thoughts and takes uh, on that? Well, of course, as our faithful listeners should know by now, after the elections comes coalition building, and it's like a puzzle. You have several parties. Each one thinks they're more important than the other one. And each one would like two things. One, to dictate or to instruct Mr. Netanyahu and what his policy should be, and to get commensurate uh, ministerial and Knesset appointments that would help them direct the government coalition in a certain direction. And also to give jobs to faithful people who are important in their own institutions. And over the past few days, and I presume for the next few days, uh, we'll be seeing this going on. We're always fed information in the media. Anybody should know. You always have to look at that a little bit with suspicion. Who is giving it? Is it really true? Is it just to influence the other side? Or is it from one side to explain away something else they're doing. And it's, it's a very difficult period, I think, for everybody involved uh, until the dust and, and the smoke all clears away and settles down. So we're at that stage now. Winky, how do you believe that these, uh, this new government is going to affect some of the things that we really watch on this show, and I'm talking about uh, Judea and Samaria, which is the issue of the quote-unquote settlers, and also, of course, Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. Well, it should affect them in a positive sense. Just one small example. Uh, with the Temple Mount, uh, many years ago, I think just before, let's put it this way, uh, when the Second Intifada broke out in 2000, uh, Saturday, visits to the Temple Mount were eliminated. Today, you can only go up from Sunday to Thursday. Friday is the Muslim uh, Sabbath, and we don't go up. And for some reason, Saturday has been taken off. Now, it wouldn't be earth-shattering if the government, as a first step, said, we're reinstituting Saturday visits. Now, that might make the police work a little harder, but usually police work you know, 24-7, more or less, in, in routine anyway, so that's, that shouldn't be a problem. Mm -hmm. In other words, some sort of indication. Another thing, we have what we call the young communities, so those that have been on the ground since about 1999, and you really have no full authorization 
or electrical hookup or a few other little things like that. And the various governments, including Mr. Netanyahu's over the years, have not fully awarded them recognition. They're on the ground, as I said, close to 20 years, some of them. So it wouldn't be earth shattering if the government said, okay, you're now official. Uh, after all, the government is known as being pro, quote, unquote, settlement. So uh, I, I don't think the new coalition partners should demand a 100% turnaround. On the other hand, I think Mr. Netanyahu has to be forthcoming with, uh, shall we say, little things or steps in the right direction that would bolster confidence with his coalition, with his voting public, and to indicate to the United States that everything that has failed up until now is not going to be repeated from a two-state solution to various other things like allowing the Arabs uh, to build almost at will in Area C and, and stealing territory that could be part of the compromise if the Arabs ever accept it in the future. Well, very interesting. We will continue to look for those uh, little adjustments, little things, because they could potentially signify bigger changes. Well, before you go, Winky, I'd like to ask you about the big controversy that's taking place here in the States. Uh, several American celebrities were talking about uh, Kanye West. I think that's his name. I don't know if he might have changed it, but uh, I know of him as Kanye West. Kyrie Irvin, the basketball player, kind of... Um, uh, not kind of, very anti-Semitic in some of their rhetoric, and and then various uh, levels of support among the rest of the industry for this type of rhetoric. And so I, we've talked about anti-Semitism on this program many times, and we know that uh, and for, for their entire existence, uh, the Jewish people have been persecuted, especially since the diaspora, culminating in what took place during the Holocaust. And we look at this now with all of that in the background. Give me your thoughts on this uh, this type of what what Kanye West was saying was not anti-Semitism light. It was very anti-Semitic. But there are other people that are kind of falling in line and kind of giving him a wink and a nod. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I, I will try, and I'll try to be uh, both direct, but to the point, uh, because it's it's a, it's a it's a very difficult topic. There's what I call traditional anti-Semitism. For example, on Halloween when I was growing up in the United States, we'd get eggs uh, on us going home. It was like Christmas time was also difficult. It was just said, well, that's it. You, you don't like the Jews. Uh, you could say. Uh, throughout the ages, whether you believe in, in certain theories or you were taught like from Martin Luther or, or, or whatever, you, you thought the synagogues is part of devil worship or all sorts of things like that. In America now, in addition to that, that does exist, especially among the white population. Uh, and I'm and I'm going to be very delicate in this. I'm not an expert on 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 2022 on what's going on. But I read the newspapers, I read the websites. What you have, in addition, is two more forms of anti-Semitism that I think people should be paying attention to. It comes from the black community. Part of it is understandable, historically speaking. Blacks moved into Jewish neighborhoods when Jews moved out to the suburbs. That's a fact. And in many cases, their landlords were Jewish. 
And so living in the conditions they lived in, instead of saying my landlord, they said my Jewish landlord, which meant that every Jew possible around could have been a landlord and was not liked. And this is how anti-Semitism grows. You might even have a good case. <laughs> but when you begin to generalize, when you begin to say the Jews own Hollywood, when there are a lot of Jews in Hollywood, but they don't own Hollywood, or Jews control the media, if we do, we're doing a lousy job at it because we get getting smashed in the media. So I don't see much how we can control it. This next stage, uh, and I'll stop right after this for, for another question, is in the black community, especially with Louis Farrakhan, if that's the way he pronounces his name, has developed that the blacks are the real Hebrews and the Jews are the fake Jews, which is really getting weird. And in the case of, for example, this David Chappelle, I think his name is, the mm -hmm. comedian, mm -hmm. and a few other Black Lives Matter movement people are very beholding to him. And that crosses over into Islam because Farrakhan runs the nation of Islam. So now you're mixing up not only normal religious or historical antisemitism, you're getting the, and I'll say it right out, the Palestine issue mixed up so that every Jew on campus who supports Israel or doesn't support Israel is getting attacked. And this is also anti-Semitism. Well, Winky, we appreciate you coming on the show. You always give a very thoughtful opinion, and I certainly agree with you. We need to be vigilant against what seems to be an increasing amount of anti-Semitism in the world. Well, uh, Winky, uh, stay safe there in Judea and Samaria, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you very much, and goodbye to you and our listeners. Israel Madad. You know, the fact that the Jews are God's chosen people means that they have been held to a higher standard. From those who are given much, much is required. That's Luke chapter 12, verse 48. Or as God said through one prophet, you only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Israel's responsibilities have included keeping and preserving the law, Joshua chapter 22, verse 5, being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, Exodus 19, 6, and bringing renown and praise and honor to the Lord, Jeremiah 13, verse 11. Their high calling is straight from the God who chose them out of all the nations of the earth. Well, this is the weekend of Thanksgiving coming up. Well, the week of Thanksgiving coming up next week. And we would like to focus a little bit on our heritage of the pilgrims who came to Plymouth and started the new colony founded on the principles of the Bible. Pastor Paul Blair comes to the program today to talk to us more about this event of Thanksgiving. And we do have Pastor Paul Blair with us today. Pastor Paul Blair, he's former NFL a lineman who has been a pastor for close to 20 or over 20 years now at the Fairview Baptist Church in Oklahoma. And he's also the president of an organization called Reclaiming America for Christ. Paul, thank you for joining us today. Rick, always a pleasure. Love your dad, love the DeYoung family, and glad to be on with you. Well, thank you very much for those nice words. And in your role as a pastor and with the uh, the Reclaiming America for Christ organization, yep. 
can you talk to us? And I know you, myself, we've spent yeah. a little bit of time right. together, and I know you to be a great patriot, but a Christian first. Sure. So if you could tell me, what role are Christians to play in politics? And, and essentially, how do we balance out our patriotic side with our Christian side? Well, obviously, the Bible is the standard for all truth, and that was what was so unique about the United States of America, is we had that biblical worldview. You know, we have certain subjects that we can talk about in church, but there are other subjects that we can't talk about in church. You know, so we have our spiritual box, which is really very small. We talk about our missions program and vacation Bible school and soul winning and Sunday school. And then we have our secular lives, where we live the vast majority. Well, that's not biblical at all. You know, from a Hebraic worldview, as the Apostle Paul conveyed in his traveling through Asia and preaching the gospel, you know, whatever we do, we're to glorify God in it. And most pastors would recognize that, that God established three institutions on planet Earth. God established the home, God established the church, and God established this realm called civil government. And he had a specific purpose for civil government and limitations for the civil government. They're not supposed to do everything. So the idea that we can't talk about civil government in church when we say that God is the one who established civil government is a contradiction. Whatever we do, we should be approaching from a biblical perspective, whether that be our business ethics, our work habits, our relationships to our husbands or wives, how we raise our children, the biblical standard and limitations of, of, of human sexuality, and quite frankly, what the civil government was supposed to be there for, in contrast, in comparison to, and quite frankly, supplemental to, self-government, family government, church government, and then there's the role of civil government. Well, beginning with John Robinson's influence on the pilgrims that settled at Plymouth, you know, 400 years ago, you know, they had this idea of, of church from a small group, from the, from the membership up, uh, where they would, uh, you know, choose their own pastors and create a covenant, church covenant and church bylaws and church constitution, which governed and sanctioned that church. You know, that was very unusual from the top-down dictatorial government of England and the same structure of church government. So when the pilgrims landed off course in November of 1620, their patent that they had received from England was of no value, so they were really in a state of anarchy. But these men, being so heavily influenced by the, by the preaching of Pastor John Robinson, knew that they had no hope of, of, of existing in the new world, in this wilderness of the new world, without staying unified together. So on November the 11th of 1620, they drafted the Mayflower Compact, which was the first time ever in history a group of equals constituted a limited general government, and then pledged to be governed by the law. Well, from that grew the influence on all the settlers that came into Massachusetts. And again, that local congregational form of church government is what bled over to how they formed their, their political systems. And of course, you had Roger Williams that came out of that group, and he settled Rhode Island. And, you, know, you had Thomas Hooker being given the patent to settle Connecticut. You know, these men were all pastors. And they were also brilliant political leaders, and they didn't consider it a contradiction. They applied a biblical perspective or a biblical worldview to the proper role and limitations of, of civil government. 
So what we've enjoyed in America, you know, this American exceptionalism, where we all have the right to own property and buy and sell and trade, we all have the freedom to worship God in spirit and in truth according to the, uh, the dictates of, of the Holy Scripture as we read the Bible. And as a consequence of those truths, we've been able to enjoy liberty. And really, Rick, the only time in Christian history that we Christians haven't been persecuted for our faith. So what we have in America is unique, and it is an exceptional uh, country, but it's only because of that biblical foundation that our forefathers built this system on. And, and sadly, as we are getting away, as we are, we are leaving biblical truth and being drawn toward this postmodernistic world that's being taught in our schools and, and promoted in the secular media, you know, where we literally are coming apart at the seams at this very moment. Boy, Paul, I love talking to you because you are such a wealth of information. <laughs> and, and I think about, that's the reason my dad asked you to be uh, on our video, uh, in America in Bible Prophecy. Yep. And, um, you know, there's, there's, there's several parts to that video. But the first part was uh, when you and my dad were in Plymouth, and you were talking about the role that Christianity played. And, and now... As we get to the time of Thanksgiving, we can kind of rehearse that and realize, like you said, those principles that have allowed us so many great freedoms. Well, that group in, in Plymouth, I, I admire greatly. You know, there are certain areas in our history, and America is the greatest nation in world history, in my opinion. You know, America, we, we have been so blessed here in America, and there's three periods that I really love and admire. One is the Pilgrims. Uh, then that era from 1740 with the Great Awakening through our Declaration of Independence and winning that war to secure our independence. So from about 1740 to 1785, you had a group of men that were on their face before God, begging God to, to bless them and direct them. And then my parents' generation, the World War II generation, when you had a bunch of innocent farm boys living in Missouri and Arkansas and Oklahoma, and all of a sudden, you know, America gets attacked and they read it in the newspaper on December the 8th, and they all go down and sign up and enlist, and we go to war against two professional armies, one Imperial Japan and, and one, uh, you know, Hitler's Germany, and in three and a half years we win. You know, those eras just amaze me. But uh, the, the Pilgrims were truly a, a miraculous group. You know, they had religious liberty when they had fled England and went to Holland. But obviously, Holland wasn't ideal. It, wasn't, it didn't suit them economically, as they were farmers, generally. And they were now working in textiles in a big city, so they didn't really love where they were at. You know, the, the, uh, the grace that was extended to them and the religious liberty, uh, they weren't entirely happy with some of the secular influences on their children, so that wasn't ideal for them in, in Leiden, Holland. And then uh, there were some other reasons, but they were looking to move. But the primary reason they came to America, and it's stated in the Mayflower Compact, and it's also stated in um, uh, William Bradford's uh, history uh, called Of Plymouth Plantation. But the, one of the main reasons they chose to, to leave Holland and come and start over in the United and what we now know as the United States, was they wanted to evangelize the native population in North America. If Jesus is the only way to heaven, then it's important that the natives in North America need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the pilgrims were so genuine in their faith. I mean, they didn't just talk it on Sundays. They lived it in every facet of their lives. 
So their credibility among, with Massasoit and the Wampanoag Indians and all the others over here was so strong. They were such principled men and women of integrity that uh, the, the, the Wampanoag tribe embraced uh, the religion of the white man. In fact, um, you know, there's a, a, a little-known story. Sadly, our history books don't teach this anymore. But uh, there was a, a warrior named Habamak that was sent to keep an eye on Squanto as Squanto was basically babysitting our pilgrim forefathers. And Habamak actually, you know, Squanto died in 1622, and Habamak continued to have a relationship with the pilgrims. He was so taken by the God of the white man that he became a Christian. In fact, he built a village next to Plymouth, so you had Habamak's village adjacent to Plymouth, and the Indians and the white men just they well, they went back and forth. As a matter of fact, uh, Winslow wrote in a in a an account that he had sent back to England that they felt safer walking amongst the Indians in their communities than they did walking the streets of England. So the influence on Christianity in that in the New World was amazing. So uh, I just uh, I just encourage. I tell you what, a, a good friend of mine runs an organization up in uh, Plymouth. Uh, his name is Dr. Paul Jaley. Uh, Paul is president of, of a group called Plymouth Rock Foundation. So I would encourage any of your listeners, they want to get some good history on the pilgrims, go to Plymouth, PlymouthRock.org and do some research because there's an abundance of, of truths there about our pilgrim forefathers that we all need to know. Uh, they, were, they were largely to be admired. Absolutely so, and in fact, this is such an appropriate time of the year to remember that as we are yeah. getting ready for Thanksgiving. Well, one, and I've just got a brief moment here, but on Prophecy Today, as you know, we deal with current events in the light of God's prophetic word, and sometimes the events that are taking place around the world can be satanic events, mm-hmm. and so sometimes we deal with a lot of heavy issues and a lot of tough subjects, but I know at this time of the year, uh, as a pastor, you're preparing a message for Thanksgiving, And I just would like to know what you are preparing to tell your people um, as we come to this special time of the year. You know, those pilgrims had endured 66 days at sea, below deck, on a small ship that was literally rocking back and forth from one side to the other. Uh, No privacy, no place to cook a hot meal, uh, no privacy to go to the bathroom, the seasickness, the amazing uh, hardships that they endured just to land at Cape Cod in the middle of winter and with no Holiday Inn Express or Hampton Inn to greet them. Uh, they endured that first winter, and although they 102 successfully crossed the North Atlantic, 47 died over the next four months. And they get through to March, and uh, miraculously they're still there. Uh, the Mayflower returns. Nobody goes back to England. And about the same day the Mayflower departed is when Samoset and Squanto come walking into camp on back-to-back days. You know, think about this. Here they are in the middle of North America, and all of a sudden you have an English-speaking Indian that loves white people and knows the ways of the white people that shows up in camp. And really, if not for Squanto, they never would have made it. Well, after that first year, they learned how to plant and how to harvest. God had blessed them, and it was obvious that they were going to make it coinciding with the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. The pilgrims had a feast thanking God and celebrating his provision 
over that year. And, of course, it was a difficult year when you consider the entirety of it, the trip, the loss of life. But here they were. They had established a home, and they'd been blessed with this first harvest. And they celebrated, and the Wampanoag, some 90 braves, along with their wives and children, came, and they ate deer and turkey and ate everything in sight and fellowshiped and shot guns and had foot races and wrestling matches. Three days of eating and fellowship, and that was the first Thanksgiving. But one thing I tell our people is Pastor John Robinson was the pastor of the pilgrims, and he mentored them and trained them and prepared them for this journey. And he, he gave them three parts of, points of advice before they took off uh, leaving uh, Old England. He said, first of all, you guys are going to have some difficult times. Make sure your sin closet is empty. Make sure you recognize that you're just going to experience some difficulties because they're difficult. Don't bring any additional obstacles on yourself because of your own disobedience. So stay prayed up, stay, keep your sin closet empty, and stay repentant of sin. Then the second thing he said was don't intentionally offend one another and don't be thin-skinned and be easily offended. Because going through times of stress, it is imperative that we stay unified as a church body. And that's what Paul says in Hebrews 10. We're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together uh, so we can encourage one another and provoke unto love and to good works. So Pastor Robinson, knowing how stressed they were going to be that next year, a year and a half, two years, as they crossed the North Atlantic and settled in the New World, gave those three pieces of advice that was sage counsel to hold that church together. And quite frankly, it's applicable to us. And in a tough year where we're facing all these threats and we see the World Economic Forum doing their nonsense and uh, the, the, the fear of, of the virus spread and everything else, we're under a lot of pressure here now. We need to apply those same three instructions to our lives as Christians in our day, just as relevant for us today as they were in 1620. Such great advice. Thank you so much for being with us. I look forward to having you back again with us sometime soon. My pleasure, Rick. God bless you. Pastor Paul Blair. Rick, that was such a great interview. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll be talking about the Judgment Seat of Christ with the Legacy Series and Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we are examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. It's time now for the Legacy Series, but before we get to that, Rick, I know last week we talked about this week we were going to preview the demise of America, the new video, the last video that Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, our father, did. We're going to cover that when? Well, Jimmy, we could talk about it a little bit today as we continue to go on. We talked about with Ken how the fact that uh, without strong leadership, America is not going to be able to lead the world. And then what is their role going to be in Bible prophecy? And that's essentially what we're talking about when we talk about the demise of America. Jimmy, we have this last DVD that our dad did up on the website. It'll be on the bookstore, and you can order it for pre-sales. It is going to be a DVD slash Blu-ray product. Uh, we'll have that there for you. 
to pre-order it. And then sometime between now and Christmas, it will be available to ship. But we're going to talk about it a little more next week as we go into detail about what we're talking about, where America fits into Bible prophecy. And like we talked about before, if it doesn't fit into Bible prophecy, what is going to happen to America? Yes, you know, and I'm thinking about all of our broadcast partners that are on this DVD, and Ken Timmerman, Sharam Hadian, Dr. Richard Schmidt, he will be on there, David James, myself, Colonel Bob McGinnis are talking about China. I mean, all these men have their uh, areas where their expertise, and they're on the video, but as far as the outcome of the demise of America, I think it will be eye-opening for sure, and we will cover that next week. Well, the Legacy Series this week is about the Judgment Seat of Christ, an event that takes place right after the rapture of the church, the event that uh, our works that we have done on this earth, according to, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, those works determine our wedding garments at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those works help us determine what we're going to be doing for eternity. This week, we're going to continue our study on the judgment seat of Christ with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. How close are we to that judgment seat of Christ? Go back to the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel. And go to chapter 37. Let me show you three little evidences of how close we are. I'm not going in depth on any of these topics that I'm going to give you. I'm going to simply introduce it to you and let you then work it out in your study. Ezekiel chapter 37. You know Ezekiel 37 is the time when Jesus Christ appears to the prophet Ezekiel. He takes him to a valley full of dry bones. There in the valley of dry bones, he asks Ezekiel a very interesting question. Can these bones live again, Ezekiel? I love the answer. Notice here, notice here in verse 3. Uh, the Lord asks Ezekiel, he calls him the son of man, that's his name. He's asking Ezekiel, can these bones live? And he said unto me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, thou knowest. Like, God, why are you wasting your time asking me about these bones if they can live? You know the answer. Why are you asking me that question? And then you know what the Lord says without beating a beat? Hey, Ezekiel, I want you to preach, man. Preach to the bones. Now, can you imagine preaching to a valley of dry bones? But old Ezekiel started to preach. And all the bones started coming together. And old Ezekiel said, man, that's pretty good preaching. Hallelujah. God said, preach on, Ezekiel. And he preached on. Skin came flying out of the sky and covered these bones. And God said, you're not finished preaching. Preach to the wind and he preached to the wind and the wind came down and filled these flesh covered bones and they stood up like a mighty army look what the text says verse 7 and so I prophesied I was commanded and I prophesied and there was a noise and behold a shaking and the bones came together bone to his bone that's the regathering of these bones verse 8 and when I beheld lo the sinew and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered them from above but there was no breath in them that's the re-restoration of these bones in verse 9 and then he said unto me prophesy unto the wind prophesy son of man verse 10 so I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came in unto them and they lived and they stood upon their feet an exceeding great army 
By the way, that is apocalyptic literature if you did not recognize it already. The Lord is using a symbol to communicate an absolute truth. The bones coming together, the flesh on the bones, the breath of life being breathed into these flesh-covered bones. Now, what's the principle for interpreting a piece of apocalyptic literature? Keep reading the Word of God. We read through verse 10. Look at verse 11. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. What he's talking about here, he's telling Ezekiel, Ezekiel, the bones are the Jewish people scattered to the four corners of the earth for 2,000 years. You preach, there will be a regathering and these bones will come together. Keep on preaching. Preach the skin down and these skin will come and cover these bones that have connected. And that's the restoration of a Jewish state. And then he said, preach unto the wind. Let the wind fill these flesh-covered bones. That's the regeneration of the Jewish people. All in the program of God. And this has been happening. May I tell you one incident. I could give you thousands. One incident. May the 24th, 1991. Judy and I have been living for five months in Jerusalem. We're both fully credentialed journalists. A journalist listens to other news gathering organizations to make sure he's on top of all the news. I would always choose to listen to the BBC, British Broadcasting Corporation. And so it's a Friday afternoon, May the 24th. Shabbat is about to begin. All of a sudden, I hear the broadcasters say, Operation Solomon is underway. I found out what Operation Solomon was. 42 aircraft took off from Ben-Gurion Airport. Flew across southern Israel, the Red Sea, northern Africa, into Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Meanwhile, in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, 15,000 Jews had made their way to the airport. In the next 24 hours, the greatest airlift to ever happen in the world, they airlifted all 15,000 in 24 hours back to Israel. At one time, there were 28 planes in the air. One 747 carries about 500 people. They took out all the seats. They put 1,087 people on that airplane. While the plane was flying from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, into Jerusalem, while the plane was in the air, seven babies were born on the airplane. They landed in Jerusalem. They went to this one location. Judy said to me, honey, they're getting ready to eat downstairs. Why don't we go help them? And so we went downstairs. Here are these thousands of Ethiopians. In front of them, a plate with a boiled egg, a container of yogurt, olives and cucumbers and tomatoes and just normal Israeli fare. They didn't know what to do. You remember, the Ethiopians were starving. One of the reasons for that 24-hour airlift to get them into Israel is so they could sustain life. They didn't know what a boiled egg was. And so I walked up to this old man. I took the boiled egg, cracked it, peeled it, showed him how to eat it. And it started to catch on. I went over to this lady, had a baby strapped on her back. I carefully opened the yogurt container, took a spoon, started feeding the baby, started feeding her. And that started to catch on. And while I was standing there, the tears were streaming down my cheeks. Because I thought of Zephaniah chapter 3, where it says... In the end times, I will reach into Ethiopia. I will get my prize and bring him to Jerusalem. We were touching the fulfillment of prophecy. Out of 108 nations of the world, these Jews have been coming into the land. Bones regathered. Flesh on the bones. The process of regeneration. 
Hey, look here at the next thing, verse 15. And then the word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it for Judah, and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. And join them one unto another into one stick, and they shall become one in thy hand. Here's what Ezekiel's told to do. Take two sticks. On one stick, put Judah. On the other stick, put Israel. And then take the two sticks and put them in your hand. And while the two sticks in your hand, the two sticks will become one. Now, many prophecy teachers and commentators have said what that's talking about is the ten lost tribes. They're out there someplace. The two tribes of Judah, Benjamin and Judah, they're already in Israel. Those ten lost tribes are going to be found in the last days that will be joined together with those two tribes of Judah. That is not correct because there's no such thing as ten lost tribes. No such thing according to the word of God. Mark it down. Book of Ezra, chapter 2. Remember Ezra 1, Cyrus is raised to allow the Jews to return to the land and build their temple. Chapter 2, it lists the 49,897 Jews that came back. They list their families and where they lived. You study them. And they are parts of all 12 tribes. Once the temple is built, Ezra chapter 6, they have a dedicatory service. In that dedicatory service, you know what they do? They sacrifice 12 he goats for the 12 tribes of Israel. When Jesus Christ is sending his disciples out, Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, he says, Don't go to the Gentiles, verse 6. Go to the whole house of Israel. Why? Because the whole house of Israel, all 12 tribes were back in the land. When you come over to Acts chapter 2, verse 5, on the day of Pentecost, there were Jews from every nation of the world in Jerusalem for that feast day. All 12 tribes are back in the land. They've been back in the land for over 2,500 years. So what is this prophecy talking about? What this is teaching in the future, after the rapture of the church, there will be two Jewish states. In my briefcase, I have a constitution for the state of Judah. I was talking to one of the major players, Rabbi Yoel Karen, who's responsible for putting the infrastructure together for the second Jewish state called Judah. He works for Baruch ben Joseph, one of the leading attorneys in Jerusalem, who was the man quoted by the Jerusalem Post, not some prophecy book, the Jerusalem Post. And he said this, the only solution we have to the Gentile world wanting to destroy the Jewish, they're going to form a second Jewish state, Judah. It's ready right now. One more thing, chapter 35. Chapter 35 is a judgment against Mount Seir. You need to study chapter 35 sometime. Who is Mount Seir? 36th chapter of the book of Genesis says Mount Seir is where God sent Edom. 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 Esau, the twin brother of Jacob. And in their mother's womb, God told Rebekah, there'll be two nations in your womb. Jacob becomes Israel. Esau, he becomes the father of the Palestinian people. I can trace it from Esau to the Palestinian people today. Look what it says. Here's the reason they're going to be judged. Verse 5. Because thou hast a perpetual hatred and hast shed the blood of the children of Israel by the force of the sword. 
They're the ones that went to live in Mount Seir. Look at verse 10. Because thou hast said, notice this, these two nations, Judah, Israel, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine and we will possess it whereas the Lord was there. This is a prophecy of the Palestinian people. Malachi chapter 1, Jeremiah chapter 49, and also the little book of Obadiah says these people will come back. Today on my radio broadcast, I talk with the man who watches the Palestinian media. I ask him about the Palestinians, listen, setting their own borders as we speak. The borders for their Palestinian state. You know what Malachi 1 says? They'll return. They'll rebuild. And I'll call their borders the borders of wickedness. The Jews from around the world gather in Israel. The land of their forefathers. He gives it to them. They will come from every place. But because of world political leaders, they'll divide into two states. And the Palestinians will rise up to kill them and to take those two states. That happens right after the rapture. After the judgment seat of Christ. That's how close we are to that event. Better be making preparations for that time. We must be preparing for the judgment seat of Christ. It follows the rapture, and according to our study in Ezekiel today, the rapture could happen at any moment. Then, the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is going to be an awesome time. Please make ready for it today. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Judges in Iran have sentenced five protesters to death since Sunday, accusing them of enmity against God. Women remain on the front lines of Iran's protest movement, despite the regime's increasing crackdown. Transform Iran's Pearl of Persia ministry serves women on the lowest tiers of society. Iran holds more than five million drug addicts, sexual abuse victims, and prostitutes. Read more on the Gospel Intersect at missionnews.org. Meanwhile, Bangladesh's foreign minister says the country's been left alone to help one million Rohingya refugees. International funding to help them has decreased every year. Greg Kelly with World Mission works among the Rohingya, giving them humanitarian relief as well as solar-powered audio Bibles. They've seen many Rohingya get baptized in the nearby Bay of Bengal, but they have to be secretive to avoid persecution from the Muslim majority. Ask God to strengthen these new believers. You've been listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the Shepherd's Field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. 
You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, this week is the week before, the couple days before Thanksgiving. And we've talked about this on this program. Great interview with Pastor Paul Blair. Uh, He's a great friend of our family, great friend of dad's over the years, very knowledgeable on the pilgrims. And I know that Pastor Blair explained about the pilgrims. Did you know, Rick, that the original Thanksgiving celebration was held by the pilgrim settlers in Massachusetts during their second winter in America in December of 1621. The first winter had killed 44 of the original 102 colonists. At one point, their daily food ration was down to five kernels of corn apiece. Wow, how times have changed. But then an unexpected trading vessel arrived, swapping them beaver pelts for grain, providing for their severe need. The next summer's crop brought hope, and Governor William Bradford decreed that December 13, 1621, be set aside as a day of feasting and prayer to show the gratitude of the colonists that they were still alive. Isn't that an amazing time? And, and in the time in which we're celebrating Thanksgiving sometimes now, uh, times have changed, haven't they? They certainly have. We're going to have more than five kernels of corn apiece <laughs> for sure on our Thanksgiving Day. But it does uh, look to our uh, our heritage and our roots here in this country as we go forward and, and the way this country was put together. And we've talked about this. We've been in Plymouth with Paul Blair and Dad as we shot the video. And it was just so interesting to rehearse the fact, the trust that the those first pilgrims had in scripture and how they were planning on forming a government underneath biblical principles, at least at the beginning anyways. You know, that first government that they used to establish, and a lot of these pilgrims, as Pastor Blair said, they used the scriptures in forming their first government. Scripturally, we find things related to the issue of thanksgiving nearly from cover to cover. Individuals offer up sacrifices out of gratitude in the book of Genesis, Rick. The Israelites sang a song of thanksgiving as they were delivered from Pharaoh's army after the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 15. Later, the Mosaic law set aside three times each year when the Israelites were to gather together, going up to Jerusalem, making Aliyah up to the city of Jerusalem. All three of these times, unleavened bread, also called the Feast of the Passover, In Exodus chapter 12, the harvest or Pentecost, that's in Leviticus chapter 23, and the feast of ingathering or tabernacles, which, by the way, we're going to be celebrating in the future during the millennial period. They involved remembering God's provision and grace. And this time of the year, we really should take time out when we do Thanksgiving to remember those pilgrims in Plymouth in 1621 as they were just giving thanks for being alive but i think as we move forward 
we as the body of Christ, as the church, should give thanks for the times in which we're living, shouldn't we? We sure should, Jimmy. And then you look back at it, and you talked about those pilgrims, and you talk about the fact that uh, they laid down biblical principles that we are now reaping the benefits of. They had helped us to establish the nation that we live in right now. Now, we've gotten away from some of those biblical principles, but we are still a very blessed nation and a very blessed people. And what blessings we do have come from where we have adhered to God's Word. Yes. I'm reminded in the New Testament, I mean, you know, we've talked about the Old Testament, and I think those pilgrims use the Old Testament a lot for forming themselves as a government, as a body, uh, as believers that were praying each and every day, thanking God for whatever they had for that day. But I'm reminded, uh, and I want to encourage Christians today always to rejoice Pray without ceasing and everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 and 18. I also want to say be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. That's Philippians 4, 6. And Rick, when you say be anxious for nothing, man, we live in a day where people are anxious about the future. Mm. I want to remind people what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving you thanks be made for all men. And really, Rick, that's a, a pattern for praying for all of us today. When we pray, we are to pray and, and uh, bring the needs of others, supplying our needs, praying our prayers interceding on the behalf of others and of giving of thanks that should be for all men. That's right, Jimmy. And also, I think we should focus at this time of the year, when you talk about Thanksgiving, we talk about God's plan through the ages for us here. And we talk about the Old Testament pointing towards the most important event in all of history, mm. the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even now, as we continue on into the future, all that we do points back to that one time that we should give thanks for this gift, this gift that is given, and what must we do to accept this gift? Yes. We like the pilgrims, Rick. We have a choice, don't we? In life, there will always be those things that we can complain about. The pilgrims had lost many loved ones. But there's also much to be thankful for. And I think this year, uh, as we come to Thanksgiving, I want to encourage all of us to be thankful for what God has given us, life, family, the pursuit of happiness. I mean, you could go on and on, couldn't you? Absolutely. So much to be thankful for. This is the time of the year where we're giving thanks. And during our annual Thanksgiving holiday, it sometimes it can be overlooked you know, really football, the gathering of the family together. But may God grant that he may find us grateful every day for all of his gifts, spiritual and material. God is good, Rick. What is it we say? God is good all the time. All the time. Yeah. And all the time, God is good. Mm -hmm. God is good and every good gift comes from him. That's James chapter 1, verse 17. For those who know Christ, God also works everything together for good, even events we would not necessarily consider to be good. May he find each and every single one of us to be his grateful children. Rick, happy Thanksgiving to you and to your family. Next week, 
We'll focus on the demise of America, but this week we wanted to focus on being thankful, and I hope that you have a great Thanksgiving, Rick. Likewise to you and yours, Jimmy. Yes. Folks, so much is happening in our world. We use Bible prophecy to help us to understand the times in which we're living and again to live a pure, productive, holy life in an unholy world. With so much that's happening in our world, we encourage you to keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today.